I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. How are you? I was so excited when you texted. I forgot to text you back, so I was that excited that I failed on that level. But like when your mom had me quoted on your fridge, I don't know how I feel about that, especially since I kind of, you know, pseudo cursed in that situation. I love it. And it was so funny because I, when she first told me about it, I was like, oh, like one of my brother's friends, because on the board, it kind of looks like Kate. And I was like, oh, Chris's friend, Kate said something really funny and like I love that my mom put this up and then she's like no 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 like like Katie from the podcast said this and I was like oh that's incredible yeah um and so because we have a little like a piece of glass up on the wall in our mm. kitchen that we kind of use as like a whiteboard for like planning meals or like doing that kind of stuff but at the moment it is filled with like two quotes mm. one from you from several episodes ago and the other from my uncle which is that Easter, it's a lifestyle, which was from <laughs> it today. Is. It is, and it's very dependent on the weather, I find. There's yeah. a different kind of Easter when the weather's nice versus, like, gross outside. Yeah, I don't know how it's been for you all today, but for us here, it's been gorgeous. It's like, gorgeous today. and yeah. not too hot. Sunny and, like, 75, like, peak beauty. And, like, not Amazing. a lot of pollen. Birds are chirping, but not in an annoying way. It's kind of a perfect storm of good stuff. A perfect so, storm of yeah. good stuff. And, like, I I don't know. Easter hasn't been a big deal for me in the past few years. But this year it feels like, oh, this is a cultural thing more so than it was previously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I was. it's been good, though. I had too much sugar. Um, that seems perfect. Which is the Easter way, I find. Um, but it's been good. And, yeah, and then my topical thing that I want to tell you about is I was in D.C. last week. And on Monday was, like, our freebie day. Kind of not uh, needed to go to the other things that we were there for. So while we were there, my brother and my dad and I were kind of uh, needed to fill a day. So we decided to go, let's go see what monuments we can check out and stuff. The last time I was there was when I was, like, 11 years old, 10 or 11, during a summer trip. And um, so what did we do? We par- we took the metro in, which was dope. Nice good train system loved it and we got off and we walked right up to washington monument it was right there which last time i was there you could go up inside it which i don't think you can do they anymore. just reopened it very recently so oh, you did can go they? back up again it's cool and then we walked down the mall and we looked at the world the way the main one we wanted to see was martin luther king and world war ii because mm-hmm. those were the new ones they're both amazing the Martin Luther King one is great, and I might have teared up a little bit because they have all his beautiful quotes yeah, it's really stunning. surrounding it. And you're like, oh, he said so many beautiful things that we need to think about now. Um, and then uh, the World War II Memorial, which was epic. I feel like that's a really good word for it. It's funny. I was there at like it's three in the morning momentous. the other night and was like, this is a lot. Yeah, yeah it was a lot. Um, um, but, you know, my grandpa... Like, that's the one that's, you know, mm-hmm. in the legend of our family in that way. And um, I find that it's, like, more culturally 
significant for a lot of people than maybe World War One is, because then we went to the DC World War One memorial, which is basically like a little column. Right, and I, roof I think it's gorgeous, but I'm also like, until someone told me what that it's was, I had also, no idea what it was. Well, it's also not a national monument; it's just for the DC veterans. Mm-hmm. So it's it's to scale of what it should be, but the World War Two one is like opulent. Yes, which. Is good and bad, right? It was like a devastatingly important period in our. I don't want to get. I don't want to get into it. It was interesting. They. I like. I, I'm interested to see how I feel about it in like 50 years or so if I ever go. Yeah. Back. Um, then we walked down. We saw Lincoln, which is still amazing, and I didn't realize that they had um, on one of the steps where Martin Luther. What. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where Martin Luther King Jr. stood, they have "I Have a Dream" etched into the steps. Oh, I don't, I didn't know. That. I've been there. Yeah, a lot. I've never I, seen I that. think the next thing that would be cool is if they actually put like footprints in it, so you could like stand where he stood. Um, but they have it just etched in, and it says Martin Luther King. And it's actually getting worn away pretty good because so many people walk over mm. it. But um, that was neat. So you can kind of stand and look at the reflecting pond. Um, and yeah, Lincoln Memorial was. Uh, it was so good. But the main event, which we didn't realize was the main event because it was sort of like tacked on to the end of our day. We're like, well, let's it's by the Metro stop. Let's just go in. Was the African-American History Museum. Mm-hmm. Well, new kid on the mm-hmm. block, right? Have you been? I spent five hours there in the fall. As well you could and should. And I still did like, not get through most of it. No. Did you go through the basement? Yeah. The like history section of up? it? Oh, my God, Michael. Is that where you sent me that information about C.J. Walker? I think so, yeah. Or was that a different museum? No, I think... Um, oh, no, the C.J. Walker stuff, that was from the, the American History Museum. Um, but there was, I think... Right. A couple of other things. I feel like I actually might have... I might be misremembering. I might have gone two winters ago, so before the podcast began. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's stunning. So worth it it's so good and so devastating (laughs) and so good and so honest Mm -hmm. it's like i I just well here's the two things that i loved about it it's uncompromising view of the whole history like the good and the bad and the terrible and the awesome and the things we can't make sense of today but we just have to know because it's our history right and you just got to speak the facts and speak the truth of what it was. Mm-hmm. Love that. That manifested in many displays and anecdotes and stuff. But the other thing um, that I loved that is fleeing my brain right now. Oh, I know. Is the fact that we had to wait in line to get it. Yeah. And it was so busy and so packed on like a Monday. You know what I mean? Like it is a... It was so encouraging to see how many people were going through there. And it wasn't all school groups. It was it was a range of faces, of ages, and of colors. I, it was just so encouraging <laughs> in such a, um, you know, news way of like, oh, it's not as bleak. My fellow man aren't as terrible as maybe mm-hmm. I'm supposed to think they are. Or... Um, Look at us all trying to educate ourselves. Um, maybe you knew this stuff already. Maybe you didn't. But, like, you're trying to learn something. And, I don't know, engage with humanity. It was just good. Yeah. I was just, like, so 
moved by how many people were there trying to get in and were nice and like following like everyone was chill and like going through the line and like you were cramped into this thing and you couldn't see but you weren't getting annoyed at anybody because like what a good problem to have you know Mm -hmm. what i mean um did you get a chance to go in um there's like a meditative room with a water feature in it that's like incredibly peaceful and zen and there's quotes on the wall I don't remember a water feature. It's sort of it's tucked away. Um, if you get a chance yeah. to go to go back, um, yeah, I'd like to because we kind of just jetted through in a in a big yeah. way. It was at the end of our day where we had just walked all that other stuff, so we got to that and we we're like, oh, we can't spend all day in here because we're so tired. Um, so we kind of had to make some concessions as we were going through. But what was what was the purpose of the space besides being? I quiet? think it's actually mostly just to be quiet. It's this sort of gorgeous like interior courtyard area with like a pool fountain in the middle um Mm. and quotes sort of etched into the wall it's like a very quiet very peaceful place um which i feel like sort of the the very hustling sections of the museum is a really nice place to take a break it's pretty amazing i mean the parts that i liked is when it like you're in this dense kind of underneath uh displays and then it opens up and there's just a big face of a wall that just goes up three stories and you just see giant quotes on the wall by like James Baldwin or Martin Luther King mm-hmm. or Ida B. Wells. And you're just kind of like, oh, the scale of it kind of becomes real. But it's not people you're looking at. It's not statues of people. It's just their words. I don't know. Yeah. I found that incredibly interesting. And um, the the... Yeah, I mean, the whole entry of it is pretty devastating because they don't hold back like you're in it like you start in what 14 something when the first slaves are brought over Mm -hmm. and they do not let you just glaze past it (laughs) do you know what i mean you can't just like get to the good parts do you know the quote unquote good parts it's like nope this is what it was let's all engage with it and just understand it because when you understand it you won't do it again that's the hope or you'll have a little more empathy Anyway, it was great. Loved it. We'll go back. Would like to go back and spend the whole day there. Because we didn't even get to... I mean, we went upstairs, but we didn't even get to touch the upstairs yeah, stuff. Yeah, I still haven't gotten a chance the, to like, do that. The, like, art history of it. Yeah. It's amazing. Love it. Please go. It's only been open two years. Yeah. So, so worth it. And the whole building itself is pretty it's spectacular gorgeous. looking. And when you look at it, I was like, the whole time we were walking, I was like, I got to know why it's shaped this way and why it looks this way. Because there's something about this look that's important that I am not privy to because I don't know. I don't know. And so as you're on your way down to the historical parts, they talk about how they settled on this kind of basket weave design of the outside and all this stuff. And it's like copper looking. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons they did it is because all the other monuments and big fancy buildings in Amer- in the D.C. are white stone buildings. And so they're like, we wanted to add a little color to the <laughs> museums because of A, the subject matter, and B, it's an all-white place. So let's change it up a little yeah. bit. And I was like, oh, it's so blatant and awesome, and I love it. Oh, it was great. It was great. Please go. Yes, highly recommend. Walked right in. It makes you feel proud to be an American because you're like, yes, we paid for this. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Well, Oprah paid for a lot of it, but um, yeah. yeah, it was just great. Um, 
this is great. I think that's probably actually like a really good lead in to the to the yeah. thing I wanted to chat about before we dive into the ladies. Um, because you yeah. mentioned well, I'm gonna say going to the museum colored the lady I was going to do mm. and then ended up doing for this one because it also ties in with the show that we just did at work. But anyway, oh, fantastic. You go first. Oh, well, I I'm I'm actually I'm super curious about that because the the thing I've had a couple of conversations recently is sort of about this question like how do we pick the ladies we talk about um, mm, and a couple of people mm-hmm. sort of been asking me about like what our what our process is and you said something a second ago that really jumped out which is just like I don't know I didn't know mm-hmm. um, and I think that that sort of I really I like that the sort of honesty that I think we've been trying to come to this with um, yeah but particularly because that's sort of the answer I've been giving to people and was wondering if that's sort of what you're how your process is um, and sort of what I'm curious like how you go about sort of picking who you do each week some of it is like ladies I know that I know uh, are a niche for some people like I know a lot of people don't know who Myrna Loy was but I love her so there's somewhere it's just like please know this person that I love and like understand why she's amazing um, and then there's also like an element of who can I talk about chilly for like 20 minutes mm-hmm. and not feel like like I'm giving a book report so I sort of like to know them a little bit, but then there's ones where it's like a tagline of, oh, I didn't know that that was a thing. I'm thinking about like Madam C.J. Walker with her hair products and stuff. Where I was like, I didn't know. That. Or the Valentine's lady. That mm-hmm. was a big one where you're like this cultural moment where, oh, that's how we got to here. I didn't realize that was a thing. But it's usually, I mean, I have a list that I started a long time ago that I sort of look at and I'll see if anybody jumps out to me. And then... um yeah, it'll be, like, kind of what I'm curious about that time. So, like, the one I picked today is very topical because of the show we did and the place I just went. So I was like, oh, I should look at, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of thing. Or I haven't done this area. So I think a cer- we don't, I don't try to find women who uh, are people of color. That's been a happy accident because most of the stories we don't know as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Definitely. which is the goal of the podcast. It's people like I think we started like plan A and then we go, OK, now who are the people that we don't know because we know the A person? Yeah. Like who's the B list people that we're that we really should because B and A are irrelevant. Um, They're just as fascinating. It's just there's sometimes there's too many people. So let me pick somebody from maybe the second step down. Yeah. Who is equally influential. I really like that as a way of sort of framing it because I think I try to do a similar thing. It's like I think like, oh, who is a figure I know and what's an aspect of them? Like, are they a scientist? Are they like an actor? Are they from a particular region? I think when we get to my lady this week, the other thing I'm realizing the more we go through it is when they're when it's from generations and generations ago, there's a mistaking narrative an easy narrative that we get in our history classes of like we don't talk about women in history because they often weren't part of things because it was an unfair system that didn't allow them to be representative in the world right and that's sort of like the way we don't like I can't teach you about medieval women because we don't have a lot of information on them and like because they were and then the narrative is you got married you had babies you probably died in childbirth um and then you died. Mm-hmm. And so, like, because that's, quote, unquote, most women, uh, that you know, there's this mis, 
misinformation that then therefore there's none there's nobody to talk about except queens and stuff whereas if you look at a little deeper you just dig a little deeper and you find someone to write a good narrative (laughs) you can find some pretty interesting women that did things (laughs) for lack of a better word that did things in the world like um if i look back on some of them like uh um oh god the nun who locked herself in a room. What was uh, her? Hildegard? Your Hildegard, right? Or Boudicca or um, any of those early ones where it's just like, why don't I know this? Why don't I know this, like, chieftain queen, but I know who Agamemnon was? Like, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. What's the difference? One epic poem? Okay, great. Well, <laughs> f- fine. I mean, you know. And it's nobody's fault. It's just kind of habit and misremembering and... We're only just now living in a world where women are a part of learning in a different way and teaching to actually give a crap, to actually look these stories up and be like, actually, that's not as boring as everyone told me it would be. So I'm going to learn about it. I think it's all these things. Is that too much information? No, I think that's great. I was just, I know I've been getting that question a lot from people. So figured I'd pose it to you and see where we landed. Yeah. The thing I'm realizing is that a lot of people have our shared interest of like, hmm, we're half the people. We should know half the stories that involve them. And they're just as interesting as the ones where you're all told all the time. But I'm sure there's just like, there's just so much. Yeah. You got to write a history book and you got to cut some stuff out. And if stuff is already figured out for you about how to write it, then you're probably going to do that because it's more work to kind of find all the niche stories that people decided weren't important. Yeah. And I mean, oftentimes it's men white men white yeah because they're writing writing. about well and they're not thinking like let me cut out all the catholics from this they're just like well i'm me and this is my view of it and i'm gonna write about me because that's how people are right if only women wrote history books it would be probably all women you know if only white women wrote history books we'd probably have the same problem if it completely flipped without the historical aspect totally. of like being oppressed for a really long time. Do you know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I'm with you. In a, in a vacuum, <laughs> you're going to write only the thing because the whole representation part, like you got to work through the lack of, uh, what am I trying to of say? The patriarchy. It's effort. It can, uh, well, uh, what am I trying to say? Clearly, there's some effort involved in relating to people who don't look like you. I'm not saying it's hard, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but clearly there's, like, something in your lizard brain that, like, miscomputes that. And maybe that's because of our privilege of witnessing that. But clearly, like, there's some benefit of, like, seeing yourself represented. It's like, oh, that's so much easier to identify with, right? Yeah. So then why would people do extra work? I don't know. We're pretty lazy. We don't really like to do that. Because we're lazy... Homo sapiens. That being said, we should do it, and it's all good, and we should all identify with everyone else because that's empathy, and we should care. Yeah, empathy is very important. Sometimes your lizard brain is just dumb, and you need to fight through it. And a lot of people, that whole (laughs) conversation we just had is too much work. (laughs) Because people got to get stuff done, and I get it. Mm -hmm. That's why we're doing it for you. That's what the podcast is here for. Right? Did I say anything offensive there? I don't think so, but I'm sure Jen will flag things for us. I think we're definitely, we're coming from, I think that's the other thing is like, we're definitely, we're coming from our particular places of privilege. And like, I feel that with my, with the woman I picked for today, um, 
in part because I'm coming from like a place of not knowing anything about sports and she's like a big sports figure so like I think she might be yeah. more famous quote unquote than like the normal women we brought but, like I didn't know anything about her yeah. and so that's how I chose yeah. her this week but it's there's a whole yeah. world of things I don't know about and so like my collection of like things that have not shown up in my life yet is obviously different from other people's right or like me being Catholic, you know, us being Catholic, like we know about saints more than other religious figures in other denominations because that's what we're exposed to and taught to learn. And like, those are your people. And Totally. Yeah. I have no idea who's supposed to go first, though. Um, I think I'm going first, but you've been talking a lot about your woman. Do you just want to jump in and do it? Yeah, I can. Let's go for it. Sure. Let's do it. Okay. All right, so part of the reason I picked this lady was um, I'm feeling a little... uh, Between the show we did, which was all about, like, archival materials from Alabama, so it was all, like, people's actual words being used in a narrative form, it was amazing. You would have loved it. Yeah, it sounds great. It made me be like, one of the most moving pieces of it are all these slave narratives of people who worked in Alabama at the time. Are those... um, This is, like, a super niche question, but are those from the Library of Congress... Hey, chill out, man. Don't steal my story. Okay, I'm so sorry. I just, like, that (laughs) just popped up on my, like, history Twitter feed today because they're a resource um, some of the people in one of my classes in college used a lot for their thesis research, and I'm, like, obsessed with them as this, like, amazing source that I wish people would know more about. They're pretty amazing. Also, the bottom level or the first two levels of the African American History Museum have these testimonials kind of uh, acted out orally. So people are speaking them as you're walking through and you can overhear their kind of narratives rather than have to read them. And it is devastatingly good um, because reading someone's voice is different than like hearing a human say these words, Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, It's pretty powerful. Um, And I think we don't maybe... Because it's a very hard time and a very painful time in our collective consciousness, we don't like to engage with it in the way that is the most uh, impactful because it hurts or it's, you know, it's devastating. So I think we try and with this kind of amazing piece of research, like I don't think I know about it because it's such a like, Mm -hmm. it's so hard and rough and terrible that you know there's only so much glutton from punishment people can be as a history teacher when they're trying to teach kids about this stuff too like we learn all those things when we're not mature enough to handle it so like yeah that's a huge problem kudos to history teachers for trying to deal with that on a daily you're doing your you're doing your best okay so uh ruby pickens tart great name we're gonna call her ruby miss rubes She's born in 1880 in uh, Sumter County, Alabama. Livingston is the town. She's born January 13th. Uh, Her mama's name is Fanny West Short Pickens and William King Pickens, who was a cotton grower. 1880, so if you think about it, her parents uh, probably lived through the end of the Civil War. I don't know how old they were. So end of the Civil War, she's solidly in Reconstruction Jim Crow stuff. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. She 
her family, or by the time she's born, her family clearly don't own slaves because it's eradicated by that point, but they're growing up in a history. I mean, her dad grew cotton, so there's a close tie. They're also in deep Alabama, so. Um, she's pretty well off. Her family uh, has some wealth, and she is in a rather progressive family for the time. Uh, I don't think it came just to her. I think she was probably raised in a pretty progressive time. Uh, she was able to go away to uh, get educated as a woman was wont to do so she had to go educate about art and, and painting and things of that nature because <laughs> the suitable accomplishments to get a husband stuff, blah 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 blah. But um, to her family's credit they did send her to college. She was able to leave the state and learn about lives that were different from her own. So a broadening of horizons in that way. Um, Her dad apparently bought her one of the first automobiles in the state. That's super casual. So not only like buying a car when cars are new, but buying a car for your daughter. Yeah. Pretty revolutionary because I don't know if we've talked about women in transportation, but basically any (laughs) time that a woman wants to be autonomous with 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 a... way of transport it was thought of as uh your womb would fall out so anyway her dad didn't seem to care about that and bought her a bought her a car um so she has some agency she has some independence which is cool she was able to travel outside alabama uh she went to the chase school of art in new york in 1901 so she's all of 21 and she learns um painting from william Merritt chase apparently this was um a very interesting style, like a very modern kind of way of painting. Mm-hmm. Um, she she would later teach art at college in her hometown, and um, she had still lifes and family portraits and all of these things. And due to her kind of fame later, these paintings are st- are can be found in historic places in Alabama today. Very cool. She marries Mr. Tart, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> William Pratt Tart. <laughs> Which is a lot of tease. In 1904, she comes home. She marries him. They're apparently high school sweethearts. Um, They're both pretty prominent families, so it's kind of the typical marriage of the time. But they apparently really loved each other. Um, And she... Hold on. Oh, she meets this guy named Carl Carmer, who was from New York, but he was teaching English at um, the University of Alabama... Which is fine. It's a fine school, but I don't want to talk about it. You definitely don't have um, any feelings whatsoever. I don't have any feelings about it, uh, about where I went to school myself, or what's better or worse. You know what? Education is important. Education is important. Um, it's fine. Uh, anywho. So anyway, he apparently loved her and thought she was really amazing, quite the storyteller, and I know in a family way, like Sunday dinners and gatherings when you would tell stories back and forth like history sharing and so when he wrote a book he wrote about a book called stars fell on alabama which i believe is the slogan of the state mm-hmm. um or one of the slow it's on the license plates it's a saying about alabama um but he wrote this book and he based a character on her so she's sort of like this um person of note in town and through her and through many people that he met, he also um, became aware of African-American culture in the Deep South at this time. So a big crazy thing happens as she's getting older. It's the late 20s at this point. She's married. Um, hard times hit with the Great Depression. Not great. And it's not great for anybody. Um, there's clearly a need for work 
all across the country, but also in her family. So she applies in her mid-50s, so you know it's bad, um, to work with the Works Progress Administration, which... Do you want to tell the kids at home what the WPA was, Michael? I or do you can know? only give the, like, third grade version give of it. Give a footnotes version? Um, That's what I have, too. So correct me when I inevitably make mistakes here, but it's one of the New Deal programs um, that FDR great. pushes through to yes. address the Great Depression. Um, it primarily functions by creating jobs, usually for, yep. like, able-bodied men to go out and do, like, public yes. works projects like bridges building government buildings here's a, fun, here's a fun elaboration on that while yes there was a decent amount of physical labor or like jobs that one would consider blue collar at this point there is also a great initiative that all work is valued and there are plenty of artistic people that need work as well so on um, a wing of that wpa will be known as the oh let me say the right thing hold on i'm gonna say the wrong thing the federal writers project mm-hmm. along with the federal theater project which is something that i am very um i have a sweet spot in my heart for uh was a way of putting out of work uh, writers, actors, uh, stage managers, designers to work. So it's basically how Orson Welles got his start really? was with the Federal Theater Project. That's how he did his all uh, African American um, Scottish play, Beth. I can say it. I'm not I did theater. not know that. He got funded through that, I believe, or like a lot of his stuff was funded through the Federal Theater Project really cool. early on. And Orson Welles is kind of interesting because he's, I mean, well, we don't need to talk about him. It's not about him right now. He's fascinating. Citizen Kane, I'll just say this. Citizen Kane, which is considered like one of the best movies of all time, was his first movie. He had never made a movie before, and they basically threw money at him to make this movie. <laughs> and then he makes a masterpiece, but nobody understands it at the time. And then it's not until later that they're like, oh, that was actually really amazing. And because he didn't care, because he just had the money, so he could make whatever he wanted, he got really, really crazy and in, in, inventive mm-hmm. and stuff. Anyway. Whatever. Back to the 30s. So, Federal Writers Project, uh, if you think about how it trickles down, like, there's a federal entity, but then in her little Sumter County, Alabama, there is a local wing of the Federal Writers Project. And so, part of the federal aspect, like, how do we make this palatable for all Americans, is a certain amount of, like, investment into American culture, documenting American life, American history, American, like, what's going on right now that we should have documented for the future. Mm -hmm. Like, that seems like something we can all get behind. And if we have every state represented and, like, a variety of information, it's not all white dudes telling the story. (laughs) So to their credit, they were like, okay, so get out there and do some stuff. And so she is appointed chair of her local FWP in Sumter County. And so she's like, ooh, this will be great. I'm going to, along with like a a trend of the time, there's all these veterans and like people who lived through the most amazing time of the South. I mean, amazing in, like, a shocking way, not like, it was great. The most amazing time of the South, which was the Civil War and the end of slavery. And who does she want to get information from? She wants to get folk tales, life stories, and personal experience from former slaves and former family of slaves. Uh, She is not a former slave or 
African-American. She's a white lady. And she's like, I see the importance of these stories. We should document them all. So she starts to take uh, the project on of going to as many people as she can and writing down their life history, their their experience of slavery in the Deep South during or before, during, and after, um, and how it's been. And they collect recordings. Um, There's also a huge element of her lifestyle of or, or, or her personal experience of engaging with the songs mm. and the like song and musical nature of the history being represented. And so they start recording a lot of folk songs and, and gospel and um, things that were clearly passed down uh, through many generations and were sort of, if not preserved, would, would go away at some point. Mm-hmm. So, she and this guy, John Lomax, collect recordings of, um, for the, there's an archive of American folk songs for the Library of Congress, which I think is amazing, and we should all go to the Library of Congress. They have a ton of stuff. So they record about 305 songs in about 15 square miles on their first wow. time out. There is just a density of stuff that they are able to archive and, and keep track of. And she's, she's the one there as far as I'm, as far as I know, she's making the contacts, but she's also like doing all the nitty gritty, you know, it's all these ladies that work at like the genealogy centers where they're just like into the details and keeping track of all the things and making sure no, everyone will understand what it is when they look at it about another hundred years. So the big get that they got that we now know is that um, this woman named Vera Hall Ward, she's a local, she's a cook and like a washer woman. She's like um, just an average lady, but she's apparently nowadays considered one of the best like folks blues singers of uh, the 20th century because her just renditions are so full and they were able to record her voice singing some of these like traditional folklore songs. It's amazing. That's really, really cool. Um, They record a ton of stuff through the next couple years. Um, By 1940, they made 145 recordings and had more than like about 800 items for the archives. They had photos of the folk singers. They had descriptions of the songs. They had recordings of the songs. They had, um, they were also able to like represent their county. Do you know what I mean? They're like, this is Sumter County. This is mm-hmm. specifically West Alabama people. This is our history. Um, the BBC actually released a series of their recordings, and she had transcribed the lyrics for their songs. Um, so they make their way across the Atlantic to inform other people about what it is to be American. <laughs> That's my spin on it. She. So, yes, yeah, so there's this great archival moment of like, I don't know, when I hear those songs of the South from like the 40s and the 30s, like it, it's a very specific kind of. It informs all music today, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it informs rock, it informs blues, it informs R&B, it informs everything. So and when you say recordings, these are like actually like audio recordings that you can go listen to. Oh yeah, I can play Vera. Hang on, let me play Vera for you. This awesome. is like her famous song. Hold on. I hope I. 
Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Went down the hill the other day. So God happy and stayed all day. Oh, Lordy, trouble so hard. Oh, Lordy, trouble so hard. Yeah. That's gorgeous. That's cool, right? Yeah. She's amazing. Um, and if, I mean, if I want to get, like, poetical on it, like, if you think about that song, which maybe, I mean, like, the dream version of it. If, she, if Vera is born in 1902, she's hearing people who sang that, who were born, I don't know, during slavery. So she's only one step removed from that kind of, like her grandparents would have been enslaved, if not her parents, depending on how old they were. I don't know. I can't do the math very well. But she's not that far removed. She's singing the songs they sang. The fact that we can record them in the 30s is a new technology. You know, we're not, I mean, like, it's fun to think like, oh man, look how far we've come. But at the same time, like, look how far we've come because it's not been that long. Yeah. Like, it's very... In the time of history, like, it's not that far. Yeah, and there's something, like, really um, powerful about, like, hearing those, like, actually hearing those literal voices and yeah. thinking about, like, where they sit in relation to that history. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So, um, in the 40s, she starts to write um, some fiction. She writes a short story. She writes uh, various um, short short stories and like collections of stories and uh based on folklore based on her upbringing based on her life and um a lot of uh cultural impact about alabama in her stories um hold on i'm gonna look through my notes so let's see yeah throughout the 50s she kind of becomes like the ultimate folk I, I love this as a job title a folklorist like sign that me up that sounds amazing title um who just continues to like record and celebrate these songs of a people that were very disenfranchised by every other aspect of their life in Alabama but at least in like cultural impact she was making sure they were represented um, some of the songs that she records get covered by other prominent artists of the time. And, yeah, I mean, that song, Trouble So Hard, eventually gets all the way to, like, even in the 90s, like, Moby had it on one of his albums. Like, it starts to permeate the culture, in other mm-hmm. ways. Like, people become more aware of all these songs, so all of a sudden they're in the culture again in a really interesting way. So... Also, while in the 40s to the 60s, she's working as the librarian in Sumter County, which, like, that seems perfect yeah, for her. She's all about the details. And she ended up um, painting her whole adult life, working in the library, archiving these songs and this folklore and these testimonials as a part of the project. Um, she passed away November 29th, 1974, and is buried in Livingston, her hometown. Um, John Lomax, who's the guy who helped record all of her stuff, said that he, she was his chief assistant guide and ramrod, which I find funny, uh, and 
continues to affect the world of folk music and folk culture as her notes, the songs, the singers, the stories, and the storytellers are rediscovered by a new generation of scholars and musicians. She's in the Alabama Women's Hall of Fame, and she, uh, the public library where she worked is named after her. Very so, cool. She led to some other ladies that I need to look up, but that's Ruby Tart, um, amazing folklorist from Alabama, without whom we would not have a lot of firsthand accounts written down. And also, like, the second they started saying she worked with the Federal Writers Project, I was like, oh, sign me up. I love talking about the FWP and the FTP and how bananas it was that it stopped. <laughs> right. We were so close to having, like, a beautiful American theater subsidized by the government. And that sounds scary to a lot of people because it sounds like socialism. We're all scared of me. But I will say... Would you have the African American History Museum without all these testimonials being written down in the 30s when people were still alive and able to talk about it? Like, it impacts so much. Yeah, and it's... Just fund uh, art. Just fund it. I mean, Quit trying to get rid of the NEA. You just it's made, not like, happen. the best it's case beautiful. for it. Because, like, writer... Like, commercial theater in New York, like, big publishing houses based out of New York are not going to write about Sumner County, Alabama. They're not making no. shows. They're not, like, doing that kind of work that a federally funded, sure, but, like, really locally rooted arts program yeah. is doing. And the thing that I'll say is be- living in Kentucky, living in Alabama, um, living in non-coastal cities, non-coastal states even, it's really, not, like, like all things, it's really nice to hear the story from the people that are actually living there and not the idea of somebody's. The idea of Alabama from other people is maybe not very favorable. But you know what? Ruby Tart is it from Alabama. Vera Hall is from Alabama. Martin Luther King did a lot of stuff in Alabama. Can we all just realize that Alabama's not total garbage? Is it terrible in a lot of ways? Yes. Did it perpetuate and continues to perpetuate a lot of problems? Yes. Jeff Sessions is from here. Maury Moore is from here. I'm not going to deny you. <laughs> but they shouldn't get the same face time as all of these people I just yeah. named. You know, it's all of it. Do you know what I mean? It's all, all of it is Alabama. Mm-hmm. You can't just pick only the stupid dum-dums. You know, there's some good people that came out of here, too. Yeah, I would say so. You know. That being said, the Great Migration happened for a reason, so it wasn't all roses, but at the same time, there were people here trying to, like, do good with the time and the place that they had. Mm-hmm. I think Ruby Tart is a good ex- expression of that. She saw a group of people that were like, these stories matter. I should help lift them up. Yeah. I don't really need the fame and acclaim. I would like to lift up these stories for the education of the future. I think yeah. that's great. Great name I think for that's something that we should lady. celebrate more. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Ruby Tart. Thanks. Did I get a little too political? No, I think you got I brought up exactly Jeff the amount of political our listeners. What's he doing now? I don't know. Is he here? Is he in my I'm state? sure he like at least came home to like recover from whatever ordeal he's put himself I think in he'll the country be fine. through in the last two something years. He put himself through everything. He didn't have to take any of the jobs he took and he didn't have to do any of the things he said he had to yeah do. i know this is this is not a political podcast but can we just take the moment to enjoy the image of him every time he walked into the white house having a letter of resignation in his jacket pocket 
Oh my god, that's a really great visual. It is. I think let's let that... And in my mind, it's Kate McKinnon playing <laughs> in the movie in my head. And it's great. I love that. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, so anyway, a great image to hold on to as we go into our break. It is great. And um, yeah, the second we started talking about the FTP, I was just like, oh, I gotta do Hallie Flanagan. I don't want to give a spoiler away, but she's the Federal Theater Project version that I wrote a term paper about in college. That I'll have to dig back. Yes, up. please. I did not take She's a theater a history goal. class in college, and feel like I've missed out on a lot of really cool people because of that. I think I just I read the we learned about um, the HUAC, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, which is a staggering moment in our history. Um, I learned about that at the same time I read The Crucible. Mm. Yes. At the same time, I was writing this paper, and they all kind of live together in the hysterics of the 1950s. So when people go, so my brain, just so everybody knows, and everybody that wants to know, you're going to know because I'm telling you, whenever I hear, like, make America great again, sorry to get political, whenever I hear that, all I think of is all the bananas nonsense that happened with those three things I just mentioned mm-hmm. to you in the same decade where I was like, how is that great? It sounded horrible. Yeah, really <laughs> It atrocious. sounded chaotic, insane, and like, we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and just theatrical, not, the ironic thing is like, they were all being so dramatic and theatrical and then trying to just decimate public art. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, you guys are living like Roman tragedy up here like what are you talking about you're doing oedipus right now you're just like (laughs) it's fascinating deeply fascinating anyway that'll be next time fantastic i'm looking forward to it thanks shall we take a break quick break do you want to talk about yours yeah um yeah to um my lady today definitely falls in the category of like I don't think she's particularly overlooked, but I definitely didn't know about her. Um, I think mostly because she's like a, like I mentioned earlier, like she's a famous athlete, which is not a category of human yeah, beings I'm that. like deeply familiar with. But when I mentioned her name, my dad was like, oh yeah, of course. Um, her name's Wilma Rudolph. Um, she's a track and field runner um, who wins, uh, who won a couple of medals at the 1960 Olympics. Um, and track and field oh. is like not something I'm like super engaged in um my dad took me i do love the olympics though. right like a good olympic story is great um and this is as like olympic stories go this one's pretty good so um mm-hmm. and the olympics is like the best part about people or it can be it can also be pretty terrible yeah. but when it's good it's good you know mm-hmm. um and this one's pretty good. And unlike my normal stories, there's not like some horrific dark turn. Like it's just, it's you actually sure? just like an uplifting story. Okay. Uh, Shoot. So I say that, and of course we're going to jump right into the like sad part, but it's, I promise it, it, it's all uphill from here. Okay, um, great. So uh, Wilma Rudolph is born in June 1940, Clarksville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. sort of in similar neck of the woods. Um, her parents um her so her dad between his two marriages has 22 children uh she is the 20th of those 22 children i'm sorry um let's do the math on that what did you just say to my ears what 22 children by how many women oh my god Mm -hmm. 
So did one have 11 and one had 11, or did one have 10? I don't know. I didn't. I mean, how'd that break <laughs> out? Or did one have two in the... Oh, oh my God. Uh, I did not dig too deeply into that, uh, but that would be a fascinating follow-up question. 22? What are you doing with your life? <laughs> Jen just said that. So intense. Yeah. Yeah. 20 oh my god you're just pregnant yeah um and so her dad worked as a railroad porter which is one of the few jobs that uh, african-american men um could get in the segregated south that allowed them to travel um so he Mm -hmm. he's working for a railroad company um and her mom is a domestic worker uh wilma is not gonna have like a super great childhood um at age four she gets pneumonia and scarlet fever at the same time which is awful what is scarlet fever i actually don't we don't get that anymore we don't do we vaccinate again i think so or we just can treat it it? called something else like pertussis or something i I actually have no idea i bet jen's googling it right now (laughs) i am too Um, the one thing I do know is that getting... It's an infectious <laughs> bacterial disease. Hold on. Thank you, Jen. Affecting children, causing fever, scarlet rash. It's called by streptococci. Yeah, so strep cool. stuff. It's a strep um, strain. That's great to know. I had lots of quality strep when I was young, so feeling a little bit of an affinity now. Yeah, it's treated with antibiotics. That so would explain then why that's not like a some huge... of those where it's probably gone now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so she's going to survive, obviously, because we're talking about her, um, but it's going to leave her left leg partially paralyzed. Um, and so for the next... Scarlet fever did? For some reason, getting scarlet fever and pneumonia at the same time. And I'm sure like poor nutrition. Yeah. Probably just adds um, to that because like who can feed 20 And like babies? not a lot of access to medical care and... It can lead to rheumatic fever, a serious condition that can affect the heart, joints, nervous system, and skin. Thank Thanks, Jen. Jen. So, yeah, I guess if your joints are all busted up from fever. Oh, yeah. Oh, so she's how old? She is four. Oh, uh, God. And so for the, oh, the no. next uh, two years, her mom, Blanche, on her one day off a week, would take her on a 45-mile bus ride to Nashville to see a physical therapist. Um, Whoa. And so for every week for two years she did this and her mom and her siblings also learned some of the exercises that she needed to do so they could help her sort of recover at home um and she's gonna spend oh my God, this family's kind of like this year is mine and ours thing is kind of like making me kind of feel bad for making the jokes about all the 22 yeah. babies but like but like you have a tribe you know what i mean literal you have tribe. your little like um your little fleet of family to help you yeah and they're they're all really really supportive um and so by age eight she's able to walk again with help from a leg brace um and soon all she really needs is like a a specific orthopedic shoe um and then one day i'm just remembering that you said she's an olympian i'm waiting for this oh yeah this this is phoenix from the ashes so here's like the staggering thing about this and we're just we should just hold on to this so at age 11 is sort of Mm -hmm. when she like fully recovers um the story that gets told is that um her mom comes out and finds her playing basketball barefoot and that's sort of how she knows like everything's gonna be okay um so let's just hold on to that 11 like 11 12 ish is when she finally recovers from this whole like 
paralyzed leg thing because that date's mm-hmm. going to be important in a second um but okay. so she starts playing basketball um and while she's attending so she goes she's attending the all-black high school in clarksville tennessee which is where she's growing up um she's playing basketball during the basketball season and then the off season she's running track mostly as a way to sort of keep busy and keep in shape but her coach her high school coach notes that like you're really really good at basketball um but you're also incredibly fast and like you should consider running as like your sport um and so she's doing really well in basketball she makes the all-state women's team twice in high school um and she starts running competitively and this gets the attention of ed temple who's the coach at tennessee state university which at this Mm -hmm. point um it's a historically black college university in Tennessee. It has an incredibly excellent track team. Um, they're pretty consistently sending, mm-hmm. um, especially female runners, to the U.S. Olympic team at this point. Um, and he invites mm-hmm. her to start training with their team during the summer um, and actually sends her to the amateur athletic union competitions in Philadelphia um, when she's still in high school. Um, and at this time, mm-hmm. track isn't professionalized yet. Um and even now it's like it's not obviously not professionalized in the same way that like basketball or hockey is but at this point if you're going to be a runner and compete um in the sort of like big international competitions everyone's an amateur and so she is this is sort of like as big as you can get without sort of being on the international stage um and she wins all nine of her events just you know casually um and then when she's a junior in high school so when she is 16, so five years after she's finally recovered from paralysis of her leg, she goes to the Olympic trials in Seattle, earns a spot on the U.S. national track team for the 1956 Olympics in Australia, and wins a bronze medal as part of the 4x100 meter relay team at wow. 16 has not graduated high school yet and already has an Olympic medal. So, you know, casual. Just, you know... Mm. What state are they Tennessee. Um, And and we should be clear, doing all this as an African-American woman in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, So, after going to the Olympics, she comes back and finishes high school. Uh, She... graduates um, and goes to start attending Tennessee State University on an athletic scholarship. Um, So she's running, she's a student, she's working, and in 1958, her first daughter, Yolanda, is born. So she's also a single mother. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's busy. She's, like, really busy. Um, Which I feel like is also a theme of the women that we talk about in this podcast is like they're impressive and they're impressive while being incredibly busy yeah they get they stuff done. do um she's going to continue getting stuff done um she qualifies again for the olympic team for the 1960 olympics in rome um mm-hmm. and that's the muhammad ali it one. is it is the muhammad ali one it is um oscar robinson reefer johnson it is the first internationally televised olympics so it is the first time that people all around the world are able to watch what's happening and because of that it sort of makes some of these athletes especially african-american athletes huge 
international stars in a way that Olympic athletes weren't really before then. Like, we sort of think, like, mm-hmm. I think of, like, um, Jesse Owens um, as sort of, right, as sort of these, like, there's, like, one or two big Olympic figures prior to the 60s, but it's this 1960 onward that you start seeing Olympic athletes as being these huge national and international figures, because you can watch them on TV hmm. for the first time. That's um, true. They're in your home. And they're just like us. And you can see their achievement. Exactly. Rather than hear about it and on the And that's the thing, right? Like, listening to someone talk about track and field is not particularly, at least to my mind. Yeah. I mean, sports in general, like professional sports that kind of trajectory through the 20th century is amplified by yeah. TV. Um, and so she is going to, this is going to be her big, her big break. Um, she shows up and is already sort of setting records in the trials and the qualifying heats. Um, but the day before she's supposed to run her hundred meter race, she sprains her ankle on the training field. Um, and even with a sprained ankle, she goes on to win um, her race and get her first gold medal of the Olympics. Um, she also runs the 200 meters, wins her second gold medal of the Olympics. Um, Chill. Cool. And as a member of the 4x100 relay team, is going to set a world record for the 4x100 and win her third gold medal of the Olympic Games. Uh, so she's oh. the first American women to woman to win three gold medals in a single Olympics. Um, and awesome in doing that also kind of is like the fastest woman in the world at this point which i always think is just like a really cool title to have is like you are the fastest human being on the planet that's really cool that's gotta feel good um and so in the course of doing this she becomes a huge figure um she's basically like the most visible african-american woman period at this point in history. I was going to say, her with, like, Muhammad Ali at that Olympics had to be a big yeah. deal. Um, and, in a, and in a way, she's going to take that sort of notoriety um, and when she comes back from the Olympics, use it um, as a tool in the civil rights movement. Um, so mm. she comes home and Clarksville, Tennessee, wants to throw her, like, a congratulations, welcome back, kind of, like, celebratory parade. Um, and like big evening of events and she's like yeah yeah yeah, that's great Um, is it going to be segregated and they're like of course it's going to be segregated it's the 60s in Tennessee and she's like cool I'm not coming then Uh, and just like refuses to participate in anything that's not fully integrated and so like they're like fine Mm. I guess we'll integrate this this one thing but we're just going to do the one thing Uh, and Mm -hmm. she doesn't really think that that's quite doing enough and so when she um, moves back and sort of is finishing up her time at college she's also really active in sit-ins and protests in Clarksville um, and sort of in May of 1963 right after she graduates college she um, moves back home and is incredibly active and basically gets um, uses her sort of media focus to get all of the public facilities in her town integrated um, by sort of participating in the civil rights work sort of in her hometown. Um, wow. And so in that, she's like obviously sort of part of this like longer trajectory of African-American athletes also being activists, like Muhammad Ali being a big example, obviously the Colin Kaepernick conversation and the sort of that, that trajectory from there to now. Um, yeah. And the, the 1960s, again with televised sports is sort of when that 
really kicks off because it really creates a platform that's much broader and much more difficult to control in a way that allows for those voices to really take advantage of the platform that Mm. is developing at that time. Um, Okay, so she, again, so like wins Olympic gold medals, but then also just like goes back and keeps going to college. Um, So she's going to graduate in 1963 with a degree in education, um, but while she's finishing up her college years, she's going to win seven more national running titles um, and set a women's world record for the 90-yard, or for the 60-yard dash. Uh, She's going to compete at a whole bunch of really prestigious invitational track meets, um, including becoming the first woman to compete in a number of them, so she's breaking both, like, um, racial barriers but also gender barriers. Uh, but the 1964 Olympics come up, and she's like, I think I'm going to call it. Um, she says, um, if I won two gold medals, there would be something lacking, and I'll stick with the glory mm-hmm. I've already won, like Jesse Owens did in 1936. So she's very deliberately sort of, like, looking to him as an example and sort of referring to his career um, in sort of justifying why she's not going to keep competing. Um, and she's very mm-hmm. clear, like, she... She wants to go out on top, and she's not going to be that kind of person who, like, holds on to it as long as she can. She's like, I won three gold medals. I was the fastest woman in the world. I think that's pretty great. Um, And so she sort of retires from running when she graduates college. Um, But even though she's not running anymore, um, she's going to serve as an official sort of goodwill ambassador for the U.S. in um, West Africa. Um, They sent her to, like sporting events and cultural events and she does a lot of the like cultural diplomacy that the u.s is trying to engage with sort of african nations in the post-colonial period um obviously as like a a black female runner she has a little bit more cultural cachet than like a white american ambassador might have Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and so she does that um the u.s also the government makes a couple of short videos about her again sort of this like weird cold war mix of like you're an african-american woman so like you don't have like full rights here in the u.s but we're gonna like put your story out to the world as this great symbol of like what is possible in america um but the sort of the kind of fascinating thing is because of the nature of track and field at this time which is that it's an amateur sport there isn't a professional circuit to be on um she did not make any money from being the fastest woman in the world. Um, like, there's no prize money. There's sort of none of the things that, like, a professional athlete at this point could expect from that Endorsement. career. Exactly. Um, she, there are a couple of sort of smaller things where she's, like, the spokesperson for a movie studio or for a couple of other businesses, and sort of that's, like, the closest she gets to endorsement deals. But she actually goes and works full-time in education after finishing her degree. Uh, she's teaching elementary school and coaching basketball and track. Um, she's going to eventually coach at DePauw University in Indiana. Um, but the sort of real work that she's doing in addition to that, so again, continuing being a very busy human being, um, is she founds the Wilma Rudolph Foundation, which, uh, which aims to train young athletes and encourage young people of color to pursue track and field. Um, mm-hmm. She There's like a huge list of awards and honors that she gets over the course of her life 
She's in the U.S. National Track and Field Hall of Fame, the Women's Sports Foundation Hall of Fame, the Black Sports Hall of Fame, the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. There's a stamp with her face on it. The like. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm just about. To, I'm about okay? to sneeze, and I'm like trying to hold it in. <laughs> no, hold it in. Do you need to let it let it rip? <laughs> Let's pause for a moment. She's in a lot of Hall of Fame. She's fans. in a lot of Hall sneeze of Sneeze break. Um, yeah, my I forgot that like DC allergies are a thing. Allergies. And, yeah. Okay. So she's in a lot of Hall of Fames. <laughs> like a lot. Like yeah. so many Hall of Fames. Great. But I Great. think my favorite thing is there's a high school in Berlin named after her. Which Whoa. is just like Why? no clue. Just like they decided to name themselves after her in two thousand. So just made okay. that choice. Um and there's a number of uh films, both the sort of like government propaganda y things, but also a couple of other documentaries and movies made about her, um, and a number of books published about her life, including her own autobiography that she published in 1977. Oh, cool. Yeah, um, and she passes away in 1994. Hmm. So, I was really, it was, again, I just like so enjoyed getting to learn about her because I really know nothing about the world of sports and especially the like not like commercialized sports the like track and field or bobsled or like other things that people do because they like enjoy that kind of competition and want to like yeah represent i'm definitely a summer summer olympics person Mm -hmm. winter's fine but i just i i ice skating just isn't it for me um that is a bold opinion and i I'm sorry. It's just I'm. It's fine. I can appreciate it. I don't get all stirred up in the same mm-hmm. way as I do with like the summer stuff. I don't know. Fair. Um, I feel like the world can participate in more summer stuff. So you see more countries doing amazing things yeah. rather than like which Norwegian team will it be? <laughs> sorry, that's me. No, there's a lot of really good diversity in the Winter Games too. But, um. Yeah, I mean, what the win- the ice skating is the gymnastics of winter, right? Basically, we don't and care about the gymnastics. Gymnastics is stuff. pretty impressive in and of itself. It's insane what they can do. I mean, that being said, the ice skating is pretty insane too. Yeah, I mean, it's all insane, but it's all pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. like speed skating. I love it all. What am I saying? <laughs> I love all of it. It's so good. Um, I love a good opening ceremony. I've watched two clips of the ones that I wasn't alive for. The 1984 one in Los Angeles is pretty amazing. I will have to go check that. Have you no, seen it? I have not. My favorite part is they're in this giant field, right? I think they're in. Well, I don't know. They're in LA, and um, they start playing one of my favorite songs of all time, which is "Rhapsody in Blue" by George Gershwin. Mm. Which, if you know it, is a big piano piece of epic proportions. So, how do they do it? They have like, I want to say 84 grand pianos come out with guys dressed in horrible blue suits or whatever but they're all playing Rhapsody in Blue at the same time and it's like one starts coming up and then like stairs of them start coming out and you can just hear the audience go like oh my god that's incredible and it's amazing and you're like I love a good show do you know what I mean I love a good like take the you know I would love to not a narrative but you take the audience on a journey of spectacle Now that you mentioned that, I would love to go it's see what cool. the 1960s opening ceremonies looked like, because those would have been the first... I wonder if that would be... They're, I mean, they're the first televised as ones. As pageant So I'm wondering if it's just, like, whatever... It's probably or probably the last chance to get to see, like, what 
one looks like that's not really designed for television, but that is designed just yeah, for... Yeah, it's not the theatrical part of it. Like, there's a celebratory atmosphere where you can see as it goes through, then it becomes like, well, let's talk about the country we're in. Okay, well, let's do, like, a narrative about the country we're in and the history of it. Okay, well, let's showcase... I mean, I remember Athens being a huge one mm-hmm. in 2004 because it was, like, a return to Greek. So there's all this, like the ancient games being influenced and all of the like because you're broadcasting to a diverse audience that genuinely don't know your culture or history a way to share that with them in a way that they'll understand and then I remember the ones that were kind of like Americans didn't know how to handle was Beijing, where we just were watching the Chinese do all this stuff, and we were like, "I still haven't seen the Beijing opening ceremonies because I missed them when they I were." I think broadcast. you really should. I think it's an amazing statement of like how China wanted to be treated, mm-hmm. and it is to my eye, to my ignorant eye at the time, it was like we have a lot of people, and we're all really Team China right now. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's immense national pride, there's immense organization, and there's just tons of people and resources and they are like here to play you know what yeah. I mean which say what you will about like ostentatiousness but at the same time I'm like we would have done the same thing do you know what I mean I remember the Sochi ones were something because mm-hmm. you're watching Russia try to tell you about its history and like without it being like we were look at all these autocrats. America was involved for a lot of that in the 20th century. Like we had a lot of opinions on how it was going. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. They kind of glo- go through like the revolution and the I don't know. It was interesting. Where you're like, oh, is that how you're telling it? Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure we would glaze over some stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm sure down. we would. You know. Have some opinions about the narrative. It's just interesting how you frame it. Yeah, I remember the London games getting, like, a little bit of, like, oh, like, that was an interesting choice, but also, like, so quintessentially British to just be, like, we're just, Mm -hmm. we're gonna kind of, like, throw some stuff on the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Yeah, it's impressive. I need someone, I need one to go to France. We haven't had a French Olympics in ever. I think there's... And they're, and it's the weird national, or it's the weird Olympic language for some colonial reason. Mm-hmm. We all have to speak French when we're talking at the Olympics. And I'm like, that seems weird. This seems archaic. <laughs> Super archaic. Like, why French? I don't... Because the guy that did it was... Fr- I don't know. Fine. Okay. It's French. Great. I don't know. Okay. So, yeah. So, that's Wilma Rudolph. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Segway. <laughs> when is the next one? 2020? I think so. Right? Didn't we just had one last yeah, year? Yeah. We just had a winter. We had the winter... It was in South Korea. Oh, yeah. That was a good one because of all the Korean stuff. Yeah. And the fact that North Korea, like, participated. That was pretty cool. Yeah, lots going on. And South Korea, like, oh, Tokyo's next. Yes. That's going to be legit. Japanese know how to party. (laughs) That they do. They know how to export their culture, too. Do you know what I mean? They know how to, like, bring you in. I mean, the way they – I remember, like, um, in Rio – they had the Tokyo mayor come out of a Mario pipe. Yes. Oh, my God. I've forgotten about that. Nintendo style. Do you remember oh, that? Yes. I was like, you know your brand. I love it. So excited about uh, that. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, they're going to make so many. That's a dream job. I would love to be choices. a stage manager for an Olympic opening yeah. ceremony. Yeah. It'd be cool. It would be cool. Tokyo's going to be great. I'm excited. Yeah. 
Wow. How'd we get here? Oh, your lady. She's yeah. an Olympian. Cool. I love it. Good ladies. Good southern ladies oh, yeah. this week. I love this. Little Tennessee, little Bama. Look at us, like, putting together a I theme. might stay in Alabama for a little while. There's some good ones Yeah, it here. seems like the this show you're working on has a lot of cool, a lot of cool stuff to pull out. Yeah, it definitely opened up some... Oh, I should look into that, because it's down the road now. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very close history, so... Cool. Amazing. All right, Michael. Well, thanks so much. You're so welcome. Thank you, Katie. Till, till next time. Yeah. See you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.